and welcome to another Dishcast. This one, again, is being broadcast from Provincetown, Massachusetts, at least that's where I am. And it's a spectacular day. It's just after July 4th. Our entire July 4th weekend was hideously wiped out by thunderstorms and rain. Poured all day on July 4th. They had to sort of cancel the, the fireworks, et cetera. But I've, I had a blast. There were lots of friends of mine in town, and um, I've been kind of a bit reclusive, and suddenly I was dragged out to a costume party, and yeah, I had a good time. I'm a little hungover. That's the truth be told, but there's no one better to be hungover with than Dave Weigel. <laughs> I don't know why I think that, Dave. Why would I think that about you? I just, I have this idea of you always as someone who's super cool to hang out with and super sane. And this is Dave Weigel of Semaphore now, formerly of the Washington Post, formerly of Slate, formerly of the Washington Examiner. No? The- oh, no, it was Bloomberg News. Was Sorry, before that. Bloomberg was News. The- Forgive me. Fantastic reporter. Good good all-around guy I've known for many, many years. All dish blogger, too. You actually were a guest blogger on The Dish just after one of your snafus in your career. But yeah. anyway, Dave Weigel, welcome to The Dishcast. Oh, it's good to be here. No, and th- thank you for that. I remember it was I was in Alaska the week that I was on The Dish, and not one of the parts of Alaska with the internet, one of the other parts where the internet was ping-ponged off some satellite. But I posted, such was my commitment to posting, that the dish went out that week. I'm very grateful. We Every now and again, I had to take a vacation. And that, that was that was one of them on my death march to oblivion, as it turned out in those days. Dave, tell me when you where you grew up. I grew up in Wilmington, Delaware, which was fairly unfamous when I was being raised. More famous now, I think, because of Joe Biden. I think we've got Aubrey Plaza, too. People like her. Uh, But it really is if if you've been to Philadelphia and its suburbs, it is half the state, a smaller version of that. The other half is rural and beachy, a bit like eastern Maryland. It does not have a big state personality. It's one of those there there are cities or states you mentioned. You can things get evoked in your mind if you hear you hear it. And that's not the case with Delaware. I I thought it was a very good place to be from. I still think that it was a good place to grow up. I lived for three years in the suburbs of London in Surrey. I finished high school there. And I add that in because I ended up being shaped quite a lot by being in the UK as I finished high school. And I wouldn't say as I, I really, as I started to set out and write for a living, I was there with the British media, which is different ways that you know, you, you know, and I think probably listeners know I me, mean, ways in which I sometimes hear a Ron DeSantis venerate. And they'll talk about how there used to be ideological media and everyone knew which was which. It, uh, that was my experience starting out in the media in, in the UK. I'd pick up The Guardian. I'd pick up The the Times. I knew they'd be coming from a different perspective, but both have accurate news. So that's what really influenced me. Delaware, very nice, suburban, sleepy place to be from. And then the UK is where I really got trained up in how to read media, how to read reporting, how to do it myself. That's why were you sent to a school in England for three years? My family moved there for work. I moved with them. My dad's uh, job was an American company that had offices in Sweden and UK, if I'm not mistaken. And for a few years, they moved the whole family there. And I I, I don't know if people still do this, right? This is one of those uh, lifestyles that might be replaced by what happened after COVID where 
you have a manager and he's doing a good job. So you pay lots and lots of money to relocate him to a different country for three years. That's what happened. So I, I switched high schools mid-year to one where I finished up my basically like my American diploma plus a few other things. And so you didn't, to college you didn't go, to, it was an American school. You didn't go to, through the English O-levels or a level system. No. I see. I learned a lot about them. It's and it, it they they were very interesting as somebody who never had to be tested by them because uh, it helped me understand a bit more of the contemporary novels I was reading too. Like what what is the what's this common universe universal education experience that, that the Brits have that I don't have? But I did other classes, AP, IB, and then was back in the American system where I've 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 been the whole time. I've come back to the UK for work a few times, but I've only been really reporting from this country. And you... one story about labor and anti-Semitism from London, which, you know, we all know how that turned out. I think they, I think they fixed that problem where they landed on it. Did you, what, you wrote a piece about labor and anti-Semitism? I did during, right up before the 2019 election. Oh, okay. The last you wrote from the UK. It was like, I was there for, for work and did that. And, well, uh, the, the good news is that Keir Starmer has pretty much stamped it out, I think. Um, Instead it, of Corbyn not being allowed to run as a labor candidate. Yeah, right? I know. Yeah. Hard ass. I'm kind of impressed by my old classmate. And yeah. of course, you were not far from where I grew up, actually, in England. You were in Surrey. I was in North Sussex as I grew up. And I was yeah. in Rygate, which is also in Surrey. And what, what was the town that you were in? It was East Horsley was the town oh. I was in. The school I went to was in Cobham. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I know those places. And about British media, the, the one thing I would say, which is that I think you're, you're absolutely right, and there is something kind of fun to read The Guardian, know that you're getting, or The Telegraph, knowing what you're getting, and then you have the whole tabloid thing, which is just a complete celebration of mayhem and mischief. Uh, but you do have the BBC, which does operate as some kind of, at least used to, until polarization took it took it to the woodshed as well but there was a sense that we could have all that because we also had a kind of empirical mainstream news organization that we could trust to do it neutrally and i think that's the difference right there never was a version of that in the united states not at the same level i think there was you would know more than me uh, always some concern from some people about what the bbc covered but this is the current it's how you have to remember <laughs> the reputation of a media outlet right now is very different than it was. It's I was like going back to the archives, of the times and looking how they covered some uh, covered something in the past, but it always was part of the establishment, the establishment media, other media, you know, as I would say answer to that, but the narratives could be driven by that. There definitely was less, less of a widespread mistrust. And, uh, but th there was never something like here's the government media media news service. We had PBS, we had NPR, but all alien to me compared to the BBC, which was, it, it felt like it was something that was just a presence in people's lives. And if the news is on there, that, of course, that wasn't going to be 100% of the angles, 100% of the news. It'd be the one that we all could agree upon, the one that had the, the fewest the fewest people dis dissenting from it. I think the closest we got in America, the times I just think of because I'm, I'm a print guy and it covers everything, the closest we got was the heyday of, of TV media when it was fairly new. And there was not, you know, frankly, this campaign built up over decades, starting with the Pal memo, continuing with all the conservative politics my whole life, uh, to one, discredit what the mainstream media did, take advantage of the occasional mistakes the mainstream media, and then I think you know, reap the benefits of, of the changeover and who becomes a reporter. You know, the, 
it, there was different if everyone in the media was the media we're, we're talking about here is you know newspapers tv if people came up through a more traditional less college educated path than if they went to the right school and they had an uncle who could get them an internship that did change how, the, how things were covered but yeah in the in, in the in the uk it just felt like there's this focal point <laughs> there's that for media that everybody trusts uh, and then there's alternatives if you want to want the alternatives. And that was interesting. I had never been in that sort of media environment before. There never was one authoritative source. And UK, I think what you might be implying is that that's no longer the state of the BBC for, for most people. They, they don't have the that, that maybe some of the trust that people had in the sense that it was above politics is not there anymore. That's my impression. Yes, that, that in fact, it, it's it's being subject to the same critique as NPR. It's, it's not as it's not as bad right. as NPR. It's not as completely bonkers as NPR. It's it's a it's a lot saner. And it because it it, it has a, a a legal obligation to be neutral. So it has to provide both sides. So actually what was interesting is that a lot of people thought the BBC was critical to legitimizing Brexit. Because mm. essentially they had to give the pro-Brexit side equal time in a referendum. And in fact the establishment media, most media had not really developed that or even looked for that or aired that very much. And so, right. of course, a lot of people said this is a false equivalence. We're, we're taking this crazy idea of, of Brexit along with. But in fact, it, it did help, I think, the right in, in, in that sense. And it does sometimes. And it hasn't stopped conservative governments being reelected and reelected. And so it's, it's but, but yeah, I can feel the same currents. Britain is as polarized as here, not quite as polarized as here, but all those neutral institutions have taken a hit, I'm afraid. But when you started out, what was your idea of what a journalist would be, what kind of journalist you wanted to be? Well, sticking in the UK for now, I had a friend whose father was the British correspondent for a Danish newspaper, and that was his job. He had the house not far from our house. Kids went to the same school as me. My dad had a job at a chemi you know, chemical technology company that I didn't quite understand. And and my friend Lauren's dad was just covering the news that was happening in the UK for his 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 readers back in Denmark. And I thought that was my first real impression. Somebody I knew who is who was a journalist. I think in the summer of two thousand I was back from 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 high school when I was about to go to college. And I I started just doing it myself by contacting the groups I was interested in at that point, there was some stuff about the 20, 2000 election. I'd see a candidate was coming to town. I'd see how to cover it. My was my first impression was this looks like a job where you show up to things and explain what's going on. Uh, that, that doesn't encompass all of it. I mean, there, a lot of the work is research and a lot of real drudgery going down a rabbit hole, trying to get someone to talk to you who doesn't end up talking to you. Maybe you'll get lucky and they too. doing a lot of database research that may or may not help you. But my first impression was this is something where you go and if you share that, if you're good at finding the detail and asking good questions, you get an interesting story out of it. And you added something to all of human knowledge, not to be too pompous about it. But, but had you not been there, there might not have been a record or a good record of what happened. And I was there. So there is. That's interesting because it's it's a theme in all your stuff. You are you're always somewhere else. You the travel that you do as a journalist is 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 near pathological it seems to be i mean i couldn't live that way but you you really believe that being there is absolutely irreplaceable i think so there are times when there's kind of a 
you know, Daniel Borston pseudo event. There's an event put together for the media. You're in the room. You're all getting the same thing. The person at home is watching a video and they're getting it too. That's the, what's new is that there was a not, you couldn't just get streaming about everything these candidates were saying. And I think I found political reporting interesting in the beginning because I thought, well, not, if I'm reading the paper, there's maybe two quotes from this guy. If I'm reading, if I'm watching in person, I'm seeing all this material that's not making it into, into, into the paper. But there's many more kinds of story than than a campaign story or political story, period. And I still felt like I wanted to see it in person. I wanted to fill in the map in my head. If there was somebody in the news, I wanted to try to talk to them. Uh, we'll probably get into this. The access has definitely tightened in many ways over time. But I remember just showing up to events and yes, there'd be security, but the idea of crowding the whole media into a pen where they're not allowed to go outside and ask questions to the audience, that's something more from the last six or eight years that wasn't there at the beginning. And I also just, I I wanted to, I had from the beginning of my career in media, I I knew what I didn't like when I read a story that I didn't like, or I thought missed something. I, I remember I remember thinking I could fix that. I think one of the first things I did, and I didn't get a huge story out of it, but I just went to cover this Ralph Nader speech because he was campaigning for president in, in Wilmington. Heard the speech and talked to some people afterward. He did a press conference afterward. And I read the coverage in the paper and thought, oh, well, it's not like they censored him or said something he didn't say. But I feel like I didn't get much of a sense of what he's promising to do if he's president. And this is, again, an 18-year-old doesn't know a lot of stuff yet. I didn't get a sense of what he wanted to do. And if I was writing that, I'd I'd write it differently and, say, and spend more time saying, here's what he, he, he'd, he'd like to do. Here's, here's how he answered that question. It was, I, I realized very quickly just for, for space reasons, again, less relevant now, but they were really re- relevant in 2000. Stuff gets cut from the story. Stuff that seems interesting gets cut from the story. I remember covering, and not all my stories are about Ralph Nader, but that was something I knew I had, had to write about. I remember going to a rally in Chicago and, collaring Michael Moore and talking to him for an interview for about 15 minutes, as substantive as it can get for, you know, 18 year old talking to Michael Moore on the fly at, <laughs> at a rally. But I remember going home and trying to pitch that to the school paper I worked at and just, it was getting cut. Nobody was, nobody was interested. And this was a year before he was going to win the Oscar and thinking, and I didn't think, oh, there's a conspiracy against me that stopped me from printing this. I just always thought, you know, as a news consumer, I'm not getting 100% of what I want from this paper I'm subscribing to. I like to go out and find it myself. Was it um, was it that you you got a horse race story there and you wanted more than that? You wanted you thought that the the Nader's basic message was the the real story there, not and you were a supporter, I think, at the time, right? At the time, in 2000, they did end up voting for him, yeah. And I think partly, but then I, I've learned, I kind of went backwards. And it was, uh, over. I was growing up at the very beginning of, of what then becomes the blogosphere. I had my own HTML on my, which I built myself. Not, that, not like it's that hard, but as opposed to now, you just create It was too app. hard for me. I couldn't, I had to had someone help me do that. I couldn't do that yeah, myself. I, 2001, I, I created my own own blog. I, I had helped a little bit with relaunching our the campus newspaper I ended up running, the weekly one, its website. Uh, I just really liked seeing the guts of the stuff and realizing, wow, there's an opportunity here to print some, some substance that's interesting that's not what everyone else has. I, it was really that that simple. And I, I do think, I, but you mentioned who I voted for. It took me a minute to 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 just become a bit more cynical about what I was covering, not cynical in a dash it off who cares way, but this what this person is saying is 
compelling in a room. Let me go and talk to some people and do the research and see if this is real. <laughs> and that was that was the the next insight. And I, mean, I figured that out pretty quickly before I started to make a real gorilla out of it. The point we're talking about, I'm still I was in high school, then I was a freshman in college, and I'm still a freshman in college as we discuss this. Did you find as a supporter of NADA that it was easy for you as a reporter to, to write and report stuff that you thought was valid and, and, and relatively objective that other people would find useful? You weren't spinning it in some kind of way? Oh, that's that's a really good question. I wanted to see inside the campaign as much as I could. So I remember just attending some me- meetings. This is it. I haven't thought about this in years because I was doing stuff I wouldn't do now, wouldn't recommend to somebody, where I found it very interesting. I thought it was undercovered and fascinating. But I also had a pretty naive view of what politics was. I, mean, I knew as much as an 18-year-old who started paying attention to years in advance. But I've always understood the people whose first vote is for a third-party candidate because you get into this and you see how complicated it looks and how silly a lot of the two-party campaigning is, and you say, oh, I have to be something better than this. Very common attitude. But I think what I what I moved on to from there was realizing, well, there's this is this is a giant PR battle that these kids are engaged in, and, and I'm seeing one part of it in public, and I need to better understand what they're doing not in public. But the part in public matters. The things they the words they say matter. They have they can have an impact, even if they don't mean to have an impact. They can be translated poorly in literally, but 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 in one quote from one speech but getting grabbed in a way that makes no sense and did is not the, the way the person intended. I remember one, this is I'm skipping ahead a few years, but one story I saw in, in one of the silliest things I remember <laughs> looking at and saying, this can't be had to do this, was a, a story in Politico where they were covering John Martha, the, the Pennsylvania Democrat who was an Iraq war supporter, became an opponent and wanted to cut the funding for the war. And the Politico headline referred to his idea of cutting the funding as slowly bleeding them, slowly beating the funding. This was a writerly turn of phrase. It was not what he said. It was not a quote. But Bush, President Bush reacted as if John Murtha had revealed their plan to slowly bleed our troops, as if he was putting leeches on them. And I remember reading that and saying, well, that's dumb. This didn't need to happen. These are all adults who could communicate with each other, and they're choosing to... This is, really the White House, in this case, choosing to misinterpret what somebody said for a political advantage. And I guess I've always had enough in me that thought, like, I don't like that. If you're just going to lie about what, what somebody's saying and they can easily explain themselves. And this is before I was ever in a position to stumble and, and need to explain myself. I thought, I don't like that. I don't like that. The, the, this, this business could be about more stuff. This could be about what they're going to do when they have power, when they can move resources around. Why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we focusing on just this? And so when I would cover stuff in person, I would say, well, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do the just check out the gaffe. I think over there are times in my career where something was such a goofy gaffe that I had to. I remember being at the debate where Rick Perry can't remember three bureaus of the government that he wants to get rid of, three departments, I should say. Hard not to write that as the story, <laughs> but I'd find just like the what is the point of covering covering politics? It's, 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 it's we're, learn, we're meeting people. Like, that's the, We're meeting voters and getting their opinions. We're putting stuff on the record from candidates. We're recording stuff that they might not have said otherwise. And when I would see something I thought was just silly, I would say, well, I'm glad I have a place to write, even if it's on my own website for a while there in the early 2000s, where I can just say, this is wrong. And this is early days of the blogosphere, 2002, 3, 4, where if you have an opinion and it seems kind of right, 
people might check and make sure you know you're you're not scamming them <laughs> maybe they wouldn't check they'd say this opinion that's pretty right is interesting and i kept seeing i didn't see this as a here's a way for me to jump jump the, the queue in journalism but i would just notice okay the people who are reporting on this stuff themselves or have their own analysis that's better than what we all heard from the media or the ones making fun of how bad this media coverage is there's no reason that the media needs to be the one constantly getting whacked for being silly i could just be use use the role i i, I whatever I role i have in the media to be aware of what is bad and and, and ridiculous and write good stories can't i and i think mostly i i did but i had complicated thoughts about this i i just one way shorter way of putting this is i didn't look at it and say I wanted to be that person, you know, next to Helen Thomas in the front row asking questions of the president. I thought that would be interesting, but I thought, well, that's that's something that's done already. And I'll occasionally get annoyed by one of the questions. That doesn't seem like it's when I look back at what was relevant about some news event 10 years ago. Rarely is it that question. I always wanted to read what was actually happening on the ground. Who is this person who is maybe not a big deal at the time, but is a big deal now? I like to. Just seeing as much of the story in, in person as possible, it's a lot of the other problems I had of like whether I had my own, too much of my opinion intermingling with these things. Do you have first memories of candidates who at the time you came across them were characters at the time you came across them? Uh, pretty obscure, not that viable necessarily, but you you saw something. I mean, I, I have, I'll say I'm just balancing one myself. I mean, Barack Obama was one of those people that I thought yeah. was, Jesus Christ, this guy is amazingly good. And it wasn't quite clear other people had understood that. What, what, you, you've, had, you've covered a gazillion more people than me. What are the ones who stand out for you? Uh, I would, was about to say Obama, too, because there was a debate. I went to Northwestern, and there was a debate on our campus for the Senate candidates. And I remembered the reporter who was assigned to it, the paper. I was the, the guy who covered a lot more politics, so I... I, I was like not immediately telling her to look out for Obama. There were other candidates I thought were in a better position based on what I'd see in the race. And then Obama was so good. <laughs> I said, okay, wait a second, we should recalibrate. And, and like, this is just a debate. Very few people saw on a college campus when he's polling at six or 7%. That made sense to me. Who was he debating? Um, uh, it was just all the Senate candidates in the democratic primary in 2003. Okay, so okay. Dan Hines, Gary Chico, Blair Hall. I mean, people who have been or trivia questions, except for the fact that, well, they're trivia questions because they ran against Obama. When it comes to, when it comes to the, the Republicans who I think I've covered a, a bit more, this is, this is a really good question because I, I'll meet a house candidate and sometimes I'll be wrong. <laughs> like remember one race I covered in Kansas where the candidate won and ended up being a phenom. I met her at a point in the campaign where she just wasn't really trained up yet. She just wasn't that good yet. And I wasn't asking the hardest questions in the world. I just thought her answers were very talking pointy. This is Sharice Davids in Kansas, 2018. What I realized as I was writing the story is, well, I mean, she's not as quotable as the other candidates in the race. So that's partly because she's a real candidate and is not making mistakes. And so once I kind of reflected after like one day, I thought, okay, I met a candidate who was going to go places. The fact that she was not a hooky, interesting interview for me, actually, that's not a downside. She's just good at this. And when it, but when it came to a candidate who just had, I met them and I saw oh, there's a ton of charisma. I'd say Gretchen Whitmer, and, uh, same thing. There's a news cycle in, Whit in, same cycle, I should say, 2018. There was a lot of coverage of one of her main primary opponents who was a progressive endorsed by Bernie Sanders. Very good on the stump, et cetera. But I, she was 
you know, the favorite in a lot of ways, but wasn't getting written about. And I met her and saw her on the stump and saw people connect and said, oh, okay, this is, this is actually working on the right with Trump actually was one of the people. Now he's not, it was a new figure in 2015, but by 2015, I've spent enough time covering Republican and democratic politics to have a sense of what voters are interested in. And I remember 2015, I just joined the post. Yes. July Trump had just made or about to make his gaffe about John McCain. I like war heroes that don't get captured the impression out there in the conversation, certainly a little bit of the paper was, we don't know how long this Trump thing is going to last. <laughs> this guy looks like he's trying to blow himself up. But I just took him very seriously. And I remember even before that, I took him seriously. And after this trip to Iowa, where the premise, or just Michigan first, where the premise is like, where is this actually going? How is this guy going to sustain this? I, I wrote a story and talked to voters and saw him and asked him questions and I said, okay, this makes sense to me. And I see exactly why he's connecting with people. They are really, they're really tired of hearing from people who are very good. They have senators and governors, very good at making speeches and explaining how the policies are going to work. Then they want somebody who's just going to, who, who has succeeded on his own terms. And they're going to forgive for a lot of those reasons because they knew who Trump was. And they also like his campaign promises. I mean, I think that was, that was the last, one of the more important times where I saw a politician that I think was being written off a little bit and said, no, I, everyone's wrong. They should not be writing him off. I mean, I think this is months before Nate Silver writes, or not Nate Silver, Harry Hinton writes about why the media is overblowing his polls. Are they, though? I mean, I'm, I'm out there and, you know, talking to people in Iowa and Michigan and, and New Hampshire, and they really like this guy. Well, like, in, in the room, he's very good at, like, dismantling his opponents and saying things that makes the crowd laugh. Why would this not be successful? And I mean, that, you, that, you also, yeah. because you've been covering it for a long time, had a, a, a good idea of where primary voters and Republicans were. Now, right. And Trump, of course, was not just this phenom, but he represented a kind of final break with a certain kind of Republican governance that the base had become incredibly frustrated with, whether that would be a function of the Iraq war or the subsequent recession, mass immigration, Tell me about immigration, particularly. How much a factor was that in in giving Trump the credibility with with the base? Because that was clearly his core message, which is which he didn't do, of course, but build the wall. Well, I this is the area where I think Trump has maybe been the most successful relative to what the party was before he took over. I know that one 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 way people approach that that topic is by saying. Oh, he his criticism of the Iraq war and the neocons that broke their inside the party. And my my thought there was they already were pretty broken. They also were not irrelevant when he became president. When it came to immigration, I've been covering that and seeing that in, in Republican politics for this is eight years. I, I'm out with um, Democrats in 2007 in Iowa. They're getting asked the questions about it. I'm talking to Steve King about it, the former Iowa congressman. The 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 animus that was there in the conservative base about about immigration, about the idea of, of people coming from across the border to take take jobs, it was always there and it was always sublimated by Republican candidates who then went, went in office would 
kind of keep things flowing. I mean, the the I think Democrats still use the Ronald Reagan example long after it stopped, stopped mattering to conservatives. Oh, you guys love Ronald Reagan, but he signed amnesty. Well, for conservative voters, that was this, maybe his one big downside is that Reagan went to D.C. and was convinced by the people who are always in power there, the, per, the permanent state, that they should do this instead of trying to deport people. That was always per- happening in the Republican base. They just w- were not confident there was a candidate who, if elected, was not going to do another amnesty. And they didn't even, weren't even 100% convinced about Cruz. And Trump was convincing, I think, because he was so blunt and, and you know, rude about it. He was very good at baiting people into a conversation where he, now this is not everything he's, he's done, but where he, under, he understood where his where his position was it was basically a starting zero about immigration or except months immigration and i knew enough about that because i when i'd covered immigration i was never allergic to any source i mean i i read pure open borders arguments from libertarians and i read peter brimelow's alien nation which that you know, basically starts him on a career path that leads to v dare and being labeled a racist etc but I, I tried to read it for as many diverse sources as I could and the most extreme arguments I could. And when I heard Trump echo some things I'd heard from you know, Brimelo and V-Dare, I thought, all right, well, this is getting a reaction that I'm familiar with what's getting the reaction. It is a politics that is considered forbidden in D.C., that you're not allowed to. You're, if you say that on the panel, you're the crazy guy they invite on the panel. If you suggest that we're going to build a wall, you're crazy. If you, the, nothing, if you, if you question that America is an idea and it's a pluralist country and so it's it's meant to be that way, you're crazy. I heard that and I thought, well, I don't know. But at the same time, I was reading, you know, the guys who agree with Trump who point to the 1965 Immigration Act and say, look at how different the country could have been if we'd not had that. And we put a pause on new immigration. I just when it, uh, if I dug into uh, as far as I could into the intellectual basis for stuff Trump was saying, it made a lot of sense to me that he was connecting. If anyone flips this audio, like, it made a lot of sense to me that he was connecting. I should talk no, faster. No, it made sense to me too because what I'm saying, what I'm analyzing, what I agree with. Well, no, I, 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 I think that that question mm-hmm. was almost rendered forbidden. That there yeah. were among elites it, it, to bring it up was to be a racist, essentially, or a bigot, or some kind of xenophobe, or some. And that was not the atmosphere in the 90s or early 2000s, but it was happening at quite an extraordinary pace, especially under George W., where it went through the, the roof. And it was quite clear the mechanisms weren't there, and yet there was still the suppression of it and the avoidance of it. I think this is where a certain critique of the media does have a, a good deal of bite. It's not that they're saying, let's write something untrue today. It's like, we're not going to raise that as a legitimate issue. We're not going to write about how many people are coming over the border. That's what, that's what these scurrilous tabloids and right-wing things do. And so that creates this sense of distrust. It, it creates the sense of you're not actually, you're not actually, you, you think you're above us really in, 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 in our, Worrying about this, I, my view, a completely legitimate political issue, is rendering us morally toxic. So fuck uh, you. Yeah. I've, I've, I've thought about that. I think there are periods in my life and career where I didn't think enough about that. I always feel better when I do. And they always start with the question, you know, does a fish know what water is? <laughs> do you know you're actually swimming around in and what you what you are saying or who you're quoting? Because everyone quotes that because the 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 way that the way that one thinks uh, is, is, a, is a certain way. 
Um, I think like the answer to me was always just trying to like, look at diverse sources. And even if I don't quote them, where I read one and say, well, this is gross and wrong, <laughs> I at least was trying to get aware of what was out there. But and it, like, immigration, one of the um, more recent, I wouldn't say a lesson I learned, but an example of what you're talking about is I went to South Texas a few times over the last couple of years to write about Republicans making gains down there. A lot of reporters went down there. But one thing I noticed, one, there's a lot of signs, there are signs, you know, there's the Blue Lives Matter iconography, the thin blue line flag. And I saw a lot that was a, a th- that flag, but a green line representing the Border Patrol um, hmm. in, in South Texas. Border Patrol is popular enough in, in among some people in South Texas that you put a, fl- a patriotic flag supporting it. Another thing I noticed is when I would talk, and even to Mexican-American Democrats, and they would refer to people cross the border illegally, they would call them illegals. Nobody was saying undocumented immigrants, Americans without pay. Nobody was coming up with a euphemism. They were saying illegals. Were they saying that because they are huge video readers and they want to implement that entire mi- uh, mindset? No, that was just the way they talked. And that was a thing I noticed. That's that's a recent example. But often I would say, huh, people are are just talking in a different way here that does not sound like the newsprint that I'm writing. And it Ooh. certainly would happen in academia. That does not sound like the academic uh, talk I'm hearing. How do I reflect that in a story? That's always been a, a fun question to ask right and left. I mean, I think it helped me covering, you know, left wing and socialist Democrats, too. I'm like, well, let's talk through your ideas and I will quote them. And if somebody sees that and they're terribly offended, they can go ahead and be offended. But let me make sure I'm using the the language and the sourcing and the theory that you're serious about here, because I want to read that in the newspaper. I want to I want to have that explained. I don't want to have a quote from some guy saying, yeah, don't worry about it. Those guys aren't for real. Don't worry about Trump. He can't win. I'm like, why do I care what he thinks? I want to see what Trump thinks. I want to hear what voters think. Yeah. And there's always a sense that you get that they're telling you, first of all, you're wrong to even bring this up. You're wrong to even use these words. And secondly, that it's not happening. The other thing is the tendency of the mainstream media to tell regular people that something that they're seeing in front of them, it's just not happening. Like mm-hmm. there is no change in the curriculum in public high schools. It's not happening. You're making it all up. There is no such thing as this sudden new gender ideology. It's all made up. It's all, it's all a fantasy. And that mm-hmm. just gets you even more angry because you're like, well, my kid just came home from school <laughs> telling me that he can become a girl if he wants to tomorrow. And, and, and that, now that's an, let me ask you about that question because there you have a classic case in which the media never covered this, refused to cover it really. You have this new revolution in gender child treatment. A couple of people like Jesse Single actually mm-hmm. jumped in early and did a, did a story. Everyone else is silent. To even ask questions is to announce that you're a bigot, essentially, until you're getting to the point where the government is saying that <clears throat> people with penises are women and regular people are saying, what? Of course they're not. And there's just this huge discrepancy between what, the current elite narrative is and what actually how people are grappling with it on the ground. And they haven't had the time to talk it through or to ask questions in an open-minded way to even come to an agree, an understanding of what's going on. Uh, that's an, that's another topic where I found frustration from readers and people who look at the news because they wonder where the new terminology came from. And I, I always I, I half joke, I have a focus group of friends I grew up with. I mentioned I'm from Delaware. I, my close friends they go to church weekly. They all have kids getting married. We want to have kids, but I don't have them yet. And they they do not pay a ton of attention to politics, but they vote. 
And there were certain topics where I could tell this 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 hit them in a, in a, in a way that I was not hearing reflected. Let's say if I went to a the room of people in D.C. who would all pay to attend some strategist breakfast or something. They just were. And it was not in a we are now going to dedicate our lives to rolling back gender ideology. It was more, hey, where did this come from? Which is kind of one of the questions you're asking. And that's one of the, I think the toughest of these. When I write about gender identity, gender you know, self-idea law, any of the, the laws coming out or proposals coming from a campaign, camp, cover, yeah, sorry, any proposal coming from a campaign or a law coming from a state, I try to understand it. I talk to, I have talked to the ACLU, I talk to GLAD, HRC. I talk to the groups that are pushing in one direction. And I try to include transgender voices too. I think every, every story I've written at Semaphore in that zone, I, I have. But I also want to say, here is what the fight is about. Here is where the language came from. Here is where the idea came from. Without worrying that if you are treating something like it's a debate, you are privileging one side of it. There are some things that are beyond reproach and you can't debate about. This is like climate change. This is, and, I, and I just, I've never quite had that attitude. I think there's an irresponsible way to platform people and just say, here's something somebody said, who knows if it's true, whatever. I mean, I think honestly, though, that's less, I would say, the, the example of that is less things I've seen in a newspaper, more networks just turning the camera on Donald Trump for, for two hours at a time in 2016. Let's play this whole rally with no commentary. With, 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 with gender, with immigration, with everything that, that has boiled up in a, in a way that I think made maybe newspaper readers uncomfortable, I, I think, well, that, why though? <laughs> Is there not some way to understand this by talking to the right people, explaining where the term came from? I also find in talking to sources, I want to know what what they're aware of and what is it, what their inputs are. What's important about the issue to them? I think it's helped. I'm so tell me uh, where your friends from Delaware what they were saying, what they were. What, oh sure. What, what what language were they using? How were they describing their 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 response to this? Oh, in this case, it was just well. Two one twenty twenty happens, and a friend who already owned a gun buys another gun. So that, that's an example of one of my, now this is not a person who was about to go out and do anything, but he just thought, boy, things look rough. I'm going to buy a gun, which to me felt there. Okay. For some people, this does not look like the summer of love 2.0. It looks like something scary that could affect that could have come to. We're house. talking now about the, the riot in the summer, 20, uh, riot, the yeah, summer of 2020. After, after okay. the protests, the, some of the rioting that happened really from end of May to Kenosha a couple months later, right? not constant rioting, but every time they saw riot on the news, they were worried about it. In this case, it was honestly just they started to hear about, uh, you know, I remember one, one friend had a kid born and somebody made a joke about, about, oh, you can't have a gender reveal party anymore. Ha ha. And it wasn't, I'm going to get up and make my entire life st- stopping <laughs> the gender, gender self ID. It was, this is a thing that happened that's kind of noosed and strange to us. And I said, well, my, you know, my friends who, because my friends as a focus group, I, I, the reason I say it's half joking is because it's kind of sociopathic to treat friends like a focus group. But it's because I I want to remember most people are not following this stuff really closely and they shouldn't have to. Most people don't. You shouldn't be that obsessed with politics. You should have somebody who can explain these things to you. But that was the specific thing was they they one person that did not know where the heck this came from, thought it was goofy that kids could be assigned a different identity at birth. And if you went on Twitter and told them that's because you're a bigot, they would have not agreed. They would have said, all right, well, maybe you're wrong. And I said, okay, what is the, what do I need to write about to explain what is, what is going on without privileging one person, one, one view or another, what's the most 
I can get somebody to say about what they're doing this. What does the law contain? Because their questions start with, hey, this is weird. Can you explain it? Yeah. And 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 when and, and when they they feel that just simply asking that question is going to render yeah. them somehow out of bounds, the resentment will build up. One of the things that I find fascinating in, in newsrooms like the Washington Post or the New York Times is there are now organizations of journalists around identity. So you have something like the Trans Journalist Association, or actually, when I I was one of the founding members of the National Gay and Lesbian Journalists Association. But at the beginning of that, when there were just a handful of openly gay people in the media, I thought it was all about, let's just get together, have a cocktail every now and again and and support each other in our work. It wasn't, we have a line to put across because we're gay and lesbian. When I read the guidelines that the Trans Journalists Association gives to the Washington Post, which the Washington Post just copies verbatim entirely Mm -hmm. why is there anybody there to say it's not our job to be trans trans transgender right activists it's our job to be journalists it's well the the good news is this is because journalists are not sitting around all day and saying how can i best spread this message around the world what is the latest for my lizard lizard people leaders to tell me how to ruin our children that's not the thought process thought process is how do I talk to sources in a respectful way? Because we're not lawyers who can subpoena you and demand you talk to us. We're trying to cover cover stuff sensitively. I don't think that instinct is 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 bad at all. I think it's just it's where I where I fret a, a little so let's bit. Ha- about let's it. ask this question: gender affirming okay. care. That's a word that we now phrase it. Okay, that was invented by some PR people, right? Where where do you think it came need- from? I usually say gender medicine. I I. I because I do think medicine, what's the most accurate? But I'm just saying, I'm just describing this phenomenon. That is the word, that's the term used. The trans oh, yeah, and I'm only the trans journalists say that's what you must say. They tell yeah. you you can't use this, you can't use that. The elaborate rules they set for journalists, and they're within the organization itself, putting unbelievable psychological pressure on other people to conform. And that's why, for example, in the gender stuff, for so many years, none of it was covered. And then it is covered, a couple of big pieces in the New York Times, and half the staff protest. Mm-hmm. Something's gone wrong there, hasn't it? I, the letter you're talking about, that came, yeah, I'm trying to think of the time of that. The complaint there was that the, the coverage the, time, the Times was doing was, having harm, was doing harm to people because you could pull up a legal briefing in Texas, the attorney general, that would cite Times reporting to say, this is a reason we need to investigate this. I actually think that's a symptom more of how, I don't want to get, how, how, how do I put this? It's not just the media they have a problem with. It's it's the entire medical infrastructure, which, which Texas conservatives I'm referring to believe has been captured by ideologues. And I think the the question I would find interesting as a reporter is what actually happened? Who who took who is it who came up with the language? Who took who took over the organization? What what is happening? What is the reason I am reading this as opposed to we're using this term and that and the old term is is verboten? But I, the only reason I was hesitating is because this topic is so enormous. The idea of printing things that do harm to people. Now, very easy for someone who, you know, went to a nice journalism school and is well-established a career to say, shake it off. But I am old enough to have the shake it off instinct that sometimes unpleasant things are going to be said, unpleasant things will appear in the paper and things that challenge your worldview might appear 
the job of the journalist is to give give you the most accurate reporting on what is known about that at that time, which can be very tough with 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 gender identity, with gender talk, because a lot of it comes from a lot of the terminology, as you've been saying, comes from activists who are not necessarily the scientists or or the the you know the child the clinicians talking to children. It is so much more fraught that but that idea that the paper was doing harm to people by by writing stories about this that would be cited in their briefings. I did not find that convincing at all. And, and especially I think some of the references, one to Emily Bazelon referring to the first transgender patient as patient zero, suggesting that made it look like it was a disease, not her intent at all. I know they took the word out. It wasn't, but it, I wasn't, saw, wasn't I it was the it was the language of the original study. <laughs> she, it was the language of the study. Was, she wasn't making anything up. That's what I mean. And this is, I think, has caused a, posed a problem for journalists. Even this is separate from gender. There's a discussion now of can you take references to a crime someone committed out of an old newspaper and you can you basically erase their record so that when employers are looking them up, that's not in the, in the record anymore. I don't like that <laughs> happening in within journalism. I think is that as a, as a public policy, do you want to have uh, you know, ban the box and make it so that somebody who has a criminal conviction, maybe totally unrelated, got drunk in college and did something stupid, got busted for a drug that's legal now, or maybe isn't legal. Does that affect their ability to work at this company? There's public policy ways. I don't like the going back and changing language and changing history because of people need to have some sort of sor uh, source that they're confident boil down everything into something true for them. And I feel like this has made it very, very difficult. I don't think that difficult. I think you can find out, find this reporting. But inside of a newsroom, I always wondered, how do we respectfully use the terms that people are talking about here and get into this issue? How do we do it? <laughs> like, we can't just worry that somebody's going to accuse us of being of, of 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 doing harm i feel like that is a, if that's a starting point for a lot of stories how many stories can't you write if if somebody out there might be offended by the presentation or the fact that you quoted somebody i mean i've quoted well, it just seems uh, to me that we had yeah. a phrase it was called a sex change we all know what that was mm -hmm. the, the minute you tell the truth and say we're having sex changes for children it's much clearer what's going on Gender affirming yeah. care mean, is, is a way to essentially lie about what is happening in language that people sniff out pretty quickly as bullshit. And, and the mainstream media's role has been to affirm all the bullshit, every single euphemism. Like you, it, 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 it's, it's, and, and, and it definitely, then let's talk about another kind of story that's difficult to understand whether, how to cover. And that is, I read this weekend a story about Hunter Biden's daughter from someone that he says he barely knew mm -hmm. but who is absolutely his daughter proven in hi there a DNA. this is not the end of this podcast in fact we're only just getting going if you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full no extra charge just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen l-i-s-t-e-n and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year great value for money. And you also get with that 
the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>